Why would you look outside yourself when you have all of the world inside? One, two, three, four. This is the Prying Priest Podcast, and I'm Father Yuri Hladio. You're listening to the first half of an unedited interview about the personal stories of amazing people and why they have come to believe what they do. For the second half of these interviews, you can become a patron of the show at patreon.com slash pryingpriest. But for now, enjoy the show. You are my first guest who is also a priest. Oh, very good. Yeah. So which I, one of us is supposed to be prying? I, I guess both of us, you know. Um, no, I had, I've had Father Deacon Simeon on here. He's the only other clergyman. Uh, and then now I have you, Father Jeffrey Reddy. Uh, so for our listeners, Father Jeffrey is one of the handful of people in my life that I would call kind of an influential teacher. Uh, so yeah, Father Jeffrey is the uh, co-director of the Orthodox School of Theology at the University of Toronto at Trinity College there, and that's where I got my master's. And the first time I encountered Father Jeffrey was when my dad had arranged a meeting for me to go to your office and talk to you about the program. This is when I was still living in Winnipeg, and I was visiting Toronto area. And I remember walking into your office, Father Jeffrey, and thinking, yeah, there's no way I'm coming out here to do a degree. There's just no way. <laughs> and then I think we spoke for, I don't know, half hour. Uh, and then I remember leaving the meeting and thinking, maybe this could happen. <laughs> well, very good. I don't remember what I would have said, but uh, I'm glad you had made that decision after all. Mm -hmm. you, uh, my mother has you to thank for uh, bringing me back to the promised land of Southern Ontario. <laughs> very good. Uh, could you maybe give a quick background of uh, maybe how you know me so that our listeners know our connection, um, but then maybe also a quick, um, a quick rundown of your involvement at the U of T. And then from there, we can go on to other subjects. Okay. Well, I believe that day you walked into my office would have been the first time I met you, but I had heard of you uh, because already your father was not only a student um, at the Orthodox School of Theology at Trinity College, but had been a good friend and uh, concelebrant uh, priest for several years. And uh, I'd got to know him uh, very well. And he told me a little bit about you. He told me uh, the rough and the smooth, as it were. And mm -hmm. um, I'm very glad that uh, we got a chance to get to know each other over the last few years through your studies and through uh, your growth into the priesthood and uh, involvement in mission in Hamilton and so forth. So um, it's been a real blessing for for me to know the Gladio clan as a whole, as well as you within it. And um, so, yeah, you're asking about my involvement at the university. Um, I started, I guess, around the end of 2014, beginning of 2015. Um, there was an existing uh, program of Orthodox studies already in place at Trinity College. It had been running for probably a little over a decade at that point, but largely as a, a kind of you know, evening program of adult study. It was, yes, they were graduate uh, courses of theological studies, but, you know, most of the students were very part-time and not really working on any degrees as such. And so uh, the uh, my fellow co-director, uh, Professor Richard Schneider, invited me to come alongside him 
and to really kind of work with him to move things up to the next level. And so we rebranded the program of Orthodox Studies as the Orthodox School of Theology at Trinity College, set up a website, uh, very uh, made it much clearer that you could do degrees through this and added the Master of Divinity degree, that was, which is the one, of course, that you did. And uh, through that, we've grown the school you know, substantially over the last few years uh, to the point where rather than just one or two courses per term, we're offering four or five people are coming and studying you know full time and doing degrees graduating with degrees and moving on to church service in a lot of different capacities so it's been uh, a very exciting time of growth and development it's a real blessing to be involved in this work there's nothing else like it in canada um the the advantage we offer to canadians is they don't have to you know, leave the country and, and go and spend a lot of money um, living abroad, whether in the U.S. or elsewhere, to do theological studies. So it's the only, you know, accredited Master of Divinity program uh, in Orthodox studies in Canada. And it's been an opportunity now to offer that as a, a service to the church, which, you know, didn't previously exist. So um, I'm very blessed to be part of all of that. Mm -hmm. I've been the best. So I've been the beneficiary of your teaching and the teaching of the other um, professors there. And there's it really is a vibrant community. And the connection that you get with the other schools of theology, uh, whether it be Anglican, Catholic, or the various different um, uh, Christian um, colleges that they have there, is really invaluable. But uh, I was there for three years, and you taught me a lot. But I don't necessarily actually know that much about your life. I don't think we've ever sat down over a pint to talk about it. Uh, so maybe we can do that live on the air here. Um, I, I don't, I, I don't have I, a pint in my hand, but, uh, <laughs> we can have the conversation. Sure. I just always have one. If it's, <laughs> if it's the prime priest podcast, you have to have a pint. Right. I haven't checked my post box, but did you send me one too? Or <laughs> yeah, it should, should be arriving pretty soon. So. Uh, yeah. So. I know little bits about your past, but it's mostly from the time that you were already an ordained priest. I don't know much before that. Um, and you were a convert into Orthodox Christianity. Is that right? Uh, that's right. So I grew up in the Anglican Church of Canada and became Orthodox around the age of 1920. Okay. That's, uh, yeah, yeah. What, like what, what uh, led up to, well, I guess let's start even earlier. What was Christianity or religion like in the home? Did you grow up in a Christian home? Yeah, we were church going at least until um, I was around uh, 10 or 11. And then for various reasons, my family stopped going to church. And then about three, four years later, at my request, we started going again. Um, but, uh, but yeah, it was, uh, it was interesting. I grew up in Mississauga. Um, and if you know anything about that city, it's um, a rather odd um, history because it was a bunch of villages to the west of Toronto that decided, you know, in the mid-1970s to become a city. Uh, but that meant that there were, you know, villages with, you know, large uh, farmland and, you know, kind of tiny dirt roads in between them and so forth that had to all be linked together. And I'm saying that because we moved into a, a brand new subdivision, one of the first completely planned communities um, in Canada. They were doing things like not only building schools and community centers and homes, but digging out artificial lakes and bike paths and things like that. Well, th the setting uh, that I'm setting for you is 
that it was the opportunity for a new church to be established. So my first experience of church that I recall is being in the basement of the rectory of the mission priest who had been sent to establish a new Anglican church um, in Meadowvale in Mississauga. And uh, I mentioned that because it's it still, to me, is the way church is supposed to look. I'm very uncomfortable in large uh cathedrals or churches that have been well-established with hundreds of families and so forth. To me, church is probably about a half a dozen to a dozen people in a kind of makeshift home chapel. Uh, I remember it was, um, there was a kind of red carpet to a certain point, which was where the Lego was of the priest's son. And then there was the blue carpet. And then that, that was the chapel. And it was decorated with uh, pews and a tiny organ that had been uh, salvaged from a convent, I believe, that had uh, decided to close down. And so to me, church is a small group of people in a mission environment, you know, just praising God and, and doing what needs to be done to further his kingdom. So what made you be the one who initiated going back to church? Well, uh, I guess alongside, you know, growing up in the Anglican church, I should mention, I was actually in the separate school system, the Roman Catholic school system. So, um, which was an odd experience simply because uh, I wasn't, you know, I was one of the very few non-Roman Catholics, but being in an Anglo-Catholic parish, uh, it meant that, you know, all of the, um, you know, kind of sacramental stages and everything that my peers at the school were going through uh, were reflected, you know, in the, um, you know, practices of, of the parish as well. And, uh, you know, so I went through first communion and first confession and so forth. Well, um, I mean, uh, we had been very actively involved in the church. My, my father had actually been a church warden and so forth. And it was around the time that the, the original priest, the one I was talking about, the mission priest, um, you know, had left to go on to another parish that my father was just kind of completely burnt out um, with church life. And so that's why we stopped going. He'd been really involved in building a church building, uh, it was, which itself was a rather interesting project because it was a, an ecumenical uh, kind of church center with three churches that were involved, three different sanctuaries, but shared common space and so forth. But it had been a very exhausting, draining, and ultimately, you know, um, off-putting experience. So we'd stopped going. But then around the age of, I guess, 13, when this at school, all my peers were going through their uh, preparation for confirmation in the Catholic Church, um, I was inspired at that point to ask to prepare for confirmation in the Anglican Church. And so it was at that point that um, at least my mother and I went back to church and uh, tried to, you know, grow into uh, the faith that had been practiced before, but, you know, return to it with a little bit more uh, deliberation and um, you know, intentionality. Yeah. And, and did you really take that to heart in terms of like prayer and, and spiritual life from that young teenage age? Or was it really just that kind of a lot of friends were doing it and you wanted to hop in there as well? I think it was a mix of different things. You know, I, I was always a kind of weird mix of, um, you know, really liking the the ritual practice of the church, enjoying liturgy. And so, I, you know, we had a rich Anglican, Anglo-Catholic liturgy at, at the parish. Um, 
and uh, but with a, a kind of evangelical heart. And I, I mean, weird things would have happened. Like I came across it at a certain point, might have been around the same time as we were looking at confirmation. But um, you know, one of those probably like a chick publication or something like that, which was in oh, chick tracks. Yeah, like in about mm. eighteen or twenty pages. Um, you know, it its whole intention is to get you really, really worried about whether you're saved or not. So, so I had that. I had the you know the attraction to ritual and everything. I also had this weird um, observation that amongst my peers, who are all kind of uh, you know, religiously going through all the different stages of Catholic um, sacramental formation and so forth, and pretty usually going to church every week. Um, a lot of them would tell me that they didn't believe in God. And, um, and so I found that odd and being a thinking person, <laughs> I thought, thought that was worth reflecting on. So that was also a kind of uh, source of, you know, wonder and bewilderment and also an opportunity maybe to reflect on my own you know, thinking about that. So I suppose the more that they practice their faith without believing anything, I was encouraged to delve into the beliefs. And um, and so I almost became an apologist. <laughs> you know, I remember just at, towards the end of elementary school, um, you know, getting into these big philosophical theological debates in the playground, you know, when, when we weren't kicking a football around or, you know, uh, playing whatever, um, I was debating with them as to why they, you know, they shouldn't actually be going to church if they didn't believe in God. And, and they didn't see the connection. Like it was like talking to um, someone for whom, you know, the faith was entirely a cultural family tradition. It had nothing to do with real belief or practice or should have any effect on, on people's lives. And I, I just, I found that disconnect really strange. And it, it forced me to kind of delve into my own uh, life a little bit more. And so as I suppose, at the, around the time I was preparing for, for confirmation, I was getting quite serious about the faith indeed, and even starting to sort of think, well, maybe there's a, you know, kind of future ministry or something like that in, uh, in, in my own, uh, you know, path. Mm -hmm. Was, were there any other religious expressions that attracted you during this time, like in your teenage years? Uh, were you always sort of on that Christian track or, or was your interest in these things expanded to maybe include, I don't know, other religious traditions at all? Um, I don't think you could say I was ever really attracted uh, to other religious expressions. Um, I remember starting to read um, a lot of C.S. Lewis in my teens, um, and I don't mean just the the narrative uh, stories and so forth, which I'd really enjoyed um, earlier on. But I, I found, you know, mere Christianity and surprised by joy and so forth. And um, I was really attracted by his whole presentation of the faith and also of his own journey. So in other words, I felt that by discovering someone like C.S. Lewis, um, and people like him. I mean, there's other authors that could come to mind, but he had already gone through a journey, right? From, uh, you know, just sort of a basic family expression and experience of faith as a child, but gone, having gone through atheism, but then having found his way back to Christianity, including by looking at other religions. Uh, I remember he famously said that, you know, if he hadn't been a Christian, you would have been a Hindu. And I found that interesting. So I wanted to go and learn about, you know, Hinduism, but it was never for, 
the sake of, I would like to consider doing this, but just, you know, to know a little bit more about this. So I became fascinated with world religions, with philosophy. Um, as a teen, I, I read a lot of different books and a lot of different ideas, you know, cross through my mind, but not necessarily because I was thinking of embracing them, but just because I wanted to know as much as possible. But I, from a very early age, I felt that my own faith, my own beliefs, my own worldview, my own thinking was very definitely set on the shoulders of a lot of great thinkers. And, and I, I trusted them. I think that's, if you'd asked me at age 16 or 17, why I believe what I did, I wouldn't have said, well, because I've worked it all out or because, you know, I have experienced everything and I've tried them and, and this is what I've chosen. I would have said that the people that I really trust and that I've got to know through reading, um, you know, C.S. Lewis, J.R.R. Tolkien, other great uh, British authors, uh, as well as, you know, philosophers and, 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 you know, saints through the centuries. I would have said that it's my first commitment is to them. And because of that, I am wanting to be part of what they're part of. Right. So it was like a real sense that this wasn't up to me. But the people that I knew and trusted, I, I would rely on them. And I remember, you know, even at times thinking, well, I doubt quite a bit. And I, you know, I, I don't have certainty about any of these beliefs. But what kept bringing me back always was a sense that, um, you know, the people that I know are much brighter and much more well read and, you know, much more knowledgeable than I am. These people have committed themselves to this. Um, and I, whether they were already long dead or not, that didn't seem to matter to me. I was at this kind of very strong communion of saints uh, sense about myself that, you know, they were my friends. They were my guides. They were the the elders that I trusted. And um, and that's what kind of grounded me at all times. So, yeah, in answer to did I need to go and experiment with other things? No, I, because I already knew who I was trusting to to point me in the right direction. Mm hmm. So you, you had a lot of these writers and these kind of intellectual giants that you looked to. Were there any people that you looked to who were like in your life, like alive, like a priest or a parent or a friend or, or um, an, an acquaintance that you looked to in a similar way? Oddly, um, I mean, yes, there were a few, um, but I mean, I, I guess I found myself more disillusioned with the people in my immediate, you know, environment. Uh, as I said, I was going to Catholic schools and, you know, peers who didn't believe in, you know, God yet went to church. You know, I just found that weird, but it was even worse when we got, I got to high school and I found that many of my teachers you know, committed to Catholic education, to teaching in this, you know, school board and everything, but they were indistinguishable from, you know, what I probably would have had at a, in an ordinary public school. So um, I challenged, you know, my teachers on, on some of these issues. I, I, I didn't make myself, <laughs> you know, <laughs> very uh, fun to have in class sometimes simply because, you know, I was, I was thinking, you know, if you believe this or you're meant to believe this, surely, you know, this has consequences or should have of ramifications and so forth. But I found that, again, uh, you know, a lot of the people in my immediate environment were simply, you know, they were, you know, maybe mouthing the words or, you know, uh, ad adhering to membership in a, in a certain group, but not actually 
seeing the kind of far-reaching consequences of something like the gospel. You know, and I and I, I started to you know read the scriptures a lot more. I became you know, really convinced that, you know, this was something very powerful, very explosive. This should be all about, you know, the world and in a kind of revolution and nobody else seemed to sense that. And so I suppose that's why I had to look further afield, you know, for examples and models for, for what I was thinking. Um, and I, and I went through phases, you know, though I had a real evangelical phase for a while. I drove my parents crazy, I think, listening to the radio and, you know, various um, uh, evangelical, you know, preachers and everything became fascinated with Billy Graham for a time. Um, but uh, he was probably the best of the bunch. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I suppose I tried on ideas that way, but it was all within a kind of, um, you know, within different kind of uh, spheres of, of Christianity and, and largely still at that point within, you know, the broader Anglican you know, tent because of course the Anglican Church um, has this capacity, which is actually quite marvelous, to uh, hold within its uh, you know broader outlines and and, and contours um, you know very different theological um, approaches. Right, so you've got the Anglo-Catholic Church and and um, kind of end of things, which I had grown up with, uh, certainly ritually and so forth, and I was still largely participating in but it had a it has a very strong evangelical wing as well um as well as a kind of broad middle part but um so i kind of gravitated depending on what i was concerned with or thinking about to one or another of those um you know parts of of, of anglicanism without feeling that i needed to go go a lot further afield mm-hmm. so take us into your young adulthood so you're I, uh, I, did you go to, I, well, I'm assuming you went to university given that you have graduate degrees now. Yes. Yeah, so, um, yeah, I finished uh, high school a year earlier than, than my peers and went off to the university of Ottawa. Um, and, um, and there we spent a year, the first year that I was uh, in Ottawa visiting, you know, different Anglican churches and being part of different Anglican churches. And almost because of what I was just saying that, you know, it was a lovely Anglo-Catholic parish that I thought was, you know, really marvelous because in good Anglo-Catholic tradition, it's not just about the high uh, church ritual and the Catholic, you know, um, you know, kind of sensibilities and so forth. But very often those parishes are the ones that are working on the street with the poor, with the homeless and everything. And so there was a marvelous, not very far from um, the University of Ottawa campus, a parish that, that I, you know, belonged to f- for some time. Um, but then some of my friends were going to this more evangelical Anglican church that was a few blocks away. And so I fell in, you know, with them a little bit, um, but started to become a little bit more, you know, restless within Anglicanism um, just simply because, uh, I mean, I was absolutely con- convinced, uh, you know, whether it was in the, the high church ritual of the Anglo-Catholic parishes or whether in the, you know, evangelical fervor of the, uh, the, the low church uh, expressions of Anglicanism. I mean, in, in any case, I, I believe classic Christianity. I believed the Nicene Creed. I was, you know, a, a, a student at the feet of C.S. Lewis and of other, you know, great Anglican um, thinkers of the 20th century and earlier. And what was more and more disconcerting to me at that point was that it didn't seem 
you know, although Anglicanism was a broad tent, um, and I thought that was that was great, and I still do. You know, I, my my sense is that you know, really, there should just be one church in every one place where everybody, whether they're Greek or Jew, male or female, rich or poor, should be able to gather together. Uh, and Anglicanism obviously tried to to do that, but but for me, that that gathering together in one place is about in. Jesus Christ in communion with the Holy Trinity, in the teaching of the uh, ancient apostolic church. And I guess it was around that time that someone pointed out to me that of the 37, I mean, I could be getting the numbers wrong here, but of the 37 bishops of the Anglican Church in Canada at that point, only two were prepared to go on record as believing in the resurrection as a, you know, as a historical objective, you know, reality, you know, and um, I had discussions with, with some of the other bishops who told me things like, oh, well, it's after a few days, um, you know, the apostles who'd been so downcast and sad about the death of Jesus, they cheered up, you know, and that's what the resurrection's all about, you know, and I heard stuff like that. And I, um, you know, much as I was you know, sympathetic to keeping as many people within the broad tent of the church as possible, to me, that seemed like it was a departure from from what I believed, and I started to wonder whether I could, in fact, um, continue to to be in communion with, with that church, or indeed, you know, seek to to find some sort of uh, work within it, uh, whether as a minister, ordained minister, or something else. But um, so that that moving between different Anglican parishes, neither of which you know uh, would have uh, reflected that departure from historic Christianity. But so that was happening at the same time as kind of seeing what was happening to the to the wider church. And and maybe in the years since then, it hasn't been as as bad as all that. But that did give me pause for thought at that point. In any case, mm-hmm. yeah, that that that's quite a jarring thing to hear, especially if you've grown up with that sort of classic Christian upbringing or that, um, you know, that mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis kind of idea of Christianity. And it sounded to me, I mean, that's why I emphasize, you know, when I was 12 and 13 in the playground, you know, arguing with my Catholic friends who said it was perfectly all right to go to church and not believe in God. I mean, it just sounded like I was up against the same thing again. And I was, Mm. you know, I've always had this, you know, just disbelief that people could, you know, read the gospels and take something from it that was other than this is really important and should change your life. You know, you can't, to me, read the gospels and and just sort of think, well, that's a lovely story. You know, Uh, what else can we do, uh, you know, alongside, you know, this to me, it's life changing. It's, it's revolutionary. It's radical. It should make a difference in your life. It should affect every part of your being. And to continue to encounter people who seem to think that this was a story like any other story or that, you know, you could, you could compartmentalize it in one part of your life and, and then go on living as a, a kind of individualist consumer or whatever. Um, it, it just doesn't make sense, you know, and I've never quite got my mind, you know, around that. To me, it's a rational decision to reject it or to accept it but not to kind of live in this middle ground, you know, where you'll, you'll even be in church ministry and yet not be convicted by it. I, I, it just doesn't make sense. Mm-hmm. So how, what was the process of then finding the Orthodox church? Well, around the same time, I, um, 
got involved heavily with uh, a group called Inner Varsity Christian Fellowship, um, which was what they used to call Christian Union in Britain. Um, today, I believe it has a, a new name or it's slightly rebranded or whatever. But um, again, a, a sort of broadly evangelical um, group at the University of Ottawa. So there were different Bible studies and prayer groups and that sort of thing. Um, and has often has happened in my life, you know, I, I fall in with a group and then very quickly I seem to be put in charge. So I was made the president of InterVarsity Christian Fellowship in my second year and had some really, really good, um, you know, contacts and, and mentors in that period. Uh, somebody that um, really had a profound influence on me um, that I met again just a few years ago. And, and it felt like we were picking up a, a kind of friendship that had never, you know, halted uh, is John Bowen. He ended up being a professor of uh, evangelism at Wycliffe College at the University of Toronto. Uh, but at the time, he was the kind of regional director of InterVarsity Christian Fellowship um, in the Ottawa area. And, um, and so we had, you know, a lot of uh, interaction and discussion and so forth. He himself um, was in the Anglican tradition and the evangelical part of the Anglican tradition. And um, so we, we talked a lot about, you know, where the Anglican church was going and, and what possibilities um, there might be for somebody who was, you know, at that point, quite young and, and looking at a, a future, you know, within it. So um, part of what um, I got involved with, with at that point was something called the Prayer Book Society of Canada, which you may know there was a, a big uh, kerfuffle in Anglicanism over the introduction of uh, a new service book uh, in the 80s and 90s um, called the Book of Alternative Services. Because, of course, Anglicanism and part of the the, the genius of the settlement um, under Queen Elizabeth I um, in, in Britain was that everybody could share one prayer book. So whether you were Catholic or whether you were evangelical, whether you were somewhere in the middle, uh, it, you know, part of what united Anglicans was the Book of Common Prayer, um, which itself is a, a absolutely phenomenal product of uh, Benedictine spirituality, right? It's a distillation of the very finest of Benedictine monastic prayer and so forth, translated into English, obviously, in the 1500s. Um, and, you know, in that regard, you know, has a lot in common with orthodoxy, because, of course, Benedictine spirituality and monasticism and everything comes out of, you know, the whole influence of the Christian East, people like John Cassian and St. Basil, um, and, and so forth. Anyway, the, the Book of Common Prayer was being not replaced. It was, it's never actually officially been replaced, but supplemented with another prayer book called the Book of Alternative Services, which actually is not a bad thing. The Book of Alternative Services was all about recovering a lot of older liturgies, including the, the liturgies of the Eastern Church. It is said, you know, uh, that you can do the entire divine liturgy of St. John Chrysostom if you flip enough pages, you know, so find the Trisagion here, find the whatever there, and um, in any case. But the point about the prayer book society wasn't that they were just diehard fanatics for the old prayer book and the old archaic language, etc., but that they were uh, holding fast to things like the Trinity and the divinity and humanity of Christ and the resurrection of Christ and the virgin birth and the ancient Christian creeds and basically what you would call classic Christianity. And so I got involved with them um, and they had a few different events um, in Ottawa and so forth at the time. And I started to hear um, a little bit more you know, through them, through people I met. Um, 
you know, with them uh, about, you know, people who were moving out of Anglicanism, whether it was towards the Roman Catholic Church, as a lot of people, you know, were. It's the kind of natural place, I suppose, for a, for an Anglican to go because it's the Western Church and everything. And, you know, the Church of England is really a... Um, a break from the Church of Rome, uh, historically anyway. Um, and then I also found out, you know, there were people who were interested in the Christian East, in, in Eastern Orthodoxy uh, and so forth. And I mean, again, something that's worth kind of um, reflecting on, a lot of Anglicans have the, the belief in what's called the branch theory of the church. Um, and the branch theory came to the kind of fore in the 19th century when there was a real move towards uh, Anglo-Catholicism and a recovery of the Catholic nature of the church in the Church of England. But the branch theory is all about saying, well, there's one church, right? One apostolic church, and it's divided into three parts. Um, in the East, there's the Greek-speaking part called the Eastern Orthodox Church. In the West, there's two parts. There's the Latin Roman Catholic Church, and there's the English Catholic Church, and that's the Anglican Church. And so amongst you know this you know, group, there's a lot of people who would say that, you know, these are the three legitimate kind of heirs of apostolic Christianity. And that, um, you know, if the one branch is kind of withering, um, you know, people were saying, then they would consider one of one of the other two. And others were saying, well, no, 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 we need to stay. We need to be faithful to our English Catholic tradition. We need to make sure the Anglican Church fulfills its destiny, as it were, as one of these three main branches of Catholic Christianity. And I suppose it was, you know, hearing this kind of discussion and everything, and then realizing more and more that there was there were very few people who were actually intending for that to be the case for for anglicanism to fulfill its its um you know destiny or or a purpose or you know vocation as the the catholic church the apostolic catholic church for english speaking christians in the way that roman catholicism is meant to be for latin speakers or latin languages and the the eastern church for greek and slavs and others and finding fewer and fewer people to kind of you know, join me in that project and realizing that that was not going to be, you know, a, a fulfilling way of, of spending Christian ministry, let alone, you know, Christian life. Uh, I started like others to kind of see, well, where can I go? Who, with which of these branches can I be in communion and yet retain my identity? Because I was not at all wanting to live, live a different Christian existence. I already knew I was you know, as I said, formed by all these great saints and thinkers from ages past. I was in communion with the saints of the early Irish and British church who were so near and dear to me. But, you know, what was the expression of Christianity that could allow me to live that more fully without having to fight every day on every side, you know, with people who just didn't see the church in those terms. And so that was the process of, of kind of discernment that was starting to take place. And I, I did look at the Roman Catholic Church, right? Because uh, as I say, it's the kind of natural place. Most Anglicans, if they leave Anglicanism, would become Roman Catholics. And even you know, since then, there's this whole ordinariate that's been set up where people who were Anglican clergy and, and, and Christians can, can join the Roman Catholic Church, but keep their 
their Anglican rituals and practices, including married clergy. Uh, that didn't exist at the time. I suppose if it had, that might have been even more of an attraction. But um, there was a kind of seminal moment, um, a real uh, watershed uh, moment for me. And that was, uh, I was doing medieval studies, amongst other things, at the University of Ottawa and er learning more and more about, you know, early um, early church, but also, you know, specifically the early church in Britain. And I remember being involved in translating uh, that famous poem, The Dream of the Rood, which is a dream poem from about the 8th century and written in Anglo-Saxon, one of the most marvelous treasures of Anglo-Saxon culture. And it just dawned on me in the moment of, you know, kind of going through this process that this spirituality that is reflected here, that I find in this poem from the 700s, um, I, I need to be where that's that's lived. Uh, you know, I, I can't I can't pretend anymore. I can't even go and find one particular parish amidst a sea of others and just sort of pretend the rest of them don't exist within any expression of Christianity. I want to find the church where this this is lived because it's such a powerful expression of the spirituality of the cross. And I, the only place that I knew that that was was in you know the the Byzantine Rite and Eastern Orthodoxy and you know in the weekly services, but especially in services like the Feast of the Cross and so forth. And and so it was that. It was finding the vestiges of everything I knew and loved about the early church in that was my own heritage, my own culture, you know, uh, the the Anglo-Saxon saints, the Celtic saints and and others, and and wanting to know how I could live that. You know, they talked about fasting twice a week. Well, who fasts twice a week? Where where can I find that? Right? Even in the Irish language, the 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 word for Wednesday is the the day of the little fast and the the word for friday is the fast day and the day the name for thursday is the day between the fast well who fasts on wednesdays and fridays where can i find that you know and it was like a million little things like that that drew that drew me into communion with the orthodox church which i don't view as a conversion because i mean i still believe and practice the same things i just i needed to find a way of doing it alongside others who were you know, on the same page as me, as it were. So um, my move wasn't, uh, you know, I need to unlearn and relearn a, a lot of things. It was, you know, where can I live the life I already want to live as a Christian? You know, again, completely convicted of the gospel and of its, you know, of its truth and that it should have an impact on my life, but also through that kind of diachronic, you know, through time um, aspect of it. I want to be in communion with C.S. Lewis. I want to be in communion with, you know, the Carolingian divines of the Anglican church. I want to be in communion with medieval saints, with early church martyrs, with the apostles, uh, with the Old Testament saints, um, which also is always a big part of my own spirituality, but was again, lacking in, in any expression I found in the West. So, Orthodoxy, I found, was home uh, in that regard. It was home because it allowed me to continue to what I had learned, you know, through through everything that I had lived and practiced. But it gave me a home that wasn't always trying to antagonize me and undermine me in the way that I found, you know, continuing to be as a Western Christian was. So before we get to the last question of the public episode, Father Jeffrey, I just want to tease the listeners with a couple of the questions I'm going to be asking you in the Patreon-only interview. 
Uh, okay. So uh, when we hit there, I'm going to be asking you about your first experiences of actually participating in Orthodox liturgy. Um, and, and then also some of your reflections on where there are touchstones between Eastern liturgy and Western liturgy um, that some people uh, might not know about. And, uh, but for the remainder of the uh, session today, so you said that it wasn't a really a conversion experience into orthodoxy, that it was more of just a place where you felt that you could live out your faith in the way that you thought was just normal for you. Um, but for yeah. a lot of people, for a lot of people coming into the church is a significant conversion experience. Um, so, and, and you would just sort of say that it was not kind of that seminal ground changing moment when you became Orthodox. I have always maintained that my conversion is to Jesus Christ and that conversion Obviously, I can, you know, pinpoint certain key moments in my, you know, upbringing and so forth. I mean, it wasn't that I had been a wayward son and gone off and to do all sorts of strange things. At, at one point in my evangelical phase, I remember re quite regretting the fact that I didn't have a, a real testimony, you know, to give. I, I wasn't able to talk about the time I'd been, you know, strung out on drugs or hanging out in brothels or whatever, and how I'd come back from that. I'd, it had been a much more kind of uniform development. But conversion to me is always, you're talking about conversion to Christ. It's about repentance and turning and putting your faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ as, as the true Lord and King of your life. And to me, that's something that, yes, we do, you know, at, at one moment, but we continue to do on a daily basis. So when I think about conversion, it's that process. Uh, my, you know, coming into communion with the Orthodox Church, um, and leaving the communion of, uh, of Anglican, uh, Church, to me, could, cannot be really called a conversion as such. I mean, obviously, probably in an etymological sense, you know, it, it is a, it's some sort of uh, conversion. But uh, I, I, I like to reserve that for that spiritual reality of our union with Christ and of our putting our trust in, in Christ. So, so yeah, I mean, I, I think, um, I mean, I, I think it was a very realistic move. It was a, a move that said, you know, where I am currently, I am kicking against the pricks, you know, to use that old translation from, you know, uh, our Lord speaking to St. Paul at the, on the road to Damascus, you know, why do you kick against the pricks? You know, why are you making this hard for yourself kind of thing? Um, and, you know, so rather than being in a place where, you know, everybody, where I, would, where I would have to spend the rest of my days persuading people of the doctrinal truth of the Trinity, or of the resurrection, um, I could. I would rather be in a place where that was a given, where that was not up for negotiation, but that you know how we put that into practice then could be the focus of my life and and ministry. Do you know what I mean? It it was um, you know I, I just felt it would be a tremendous waste of of energy to to belong to a club whose purposes seem to be drifting away from from its original founding you know, uh, charter or whatever. And so, um, it made sense for me to be in a different club where, where I, where there was agreement, you know, my, my goals, my, uh, understanding of Christianity 
you know, matched. And so in that regard, you know, yeah, I mean, it all, did it involve changes? Of course it did. You know, uh, it, it was a very unfamiliar liturgy to begin with. Um, it, there were a lot of unfamiliar practices and words even. Um, there was a whole new history you know, to learn, uh, and to some extent, cultural prejudices to, to overcome, right? Um, but, uh, and obviously, lots and lots of new and different people to, to meet, uh, and so forth. But ultimately, it was, what I found was the spirituality, the faith, the practice in my beloved, you know, uh, family of saints going right back to, you know, the early church. Uh, my own patron um, is the spiritual father and mentor to the Venerable Beat. So, uh, St. Geoffrey, um, or in the Anglo-Saxon Kjolfrith, uh, was abbot of Wearmouth and Jarrow in um, Northumbria, you know, and he died at the beginning of the 8th century. Uh, but so for me to connect with him uh, in the Orthodox Church was a lot easier. And it was actually the, the, the final question I remember asking the priest who received me into the Orthodox Church was, do I need, you know, can you guarantee me that I do not need to become Greek or Russian or Ukrainian or, or whatever? Like, like literally, can I remain you know, uh, the one who kind of commemorates the Irish and English saints and who, who kind of lives that. And it had been a process where this priest had, had kind of been giving me icons. So oh, look, here's another, an icon of a British saint, or here's a book of saints' lives written from an, you know, from the Orthodox perspective, but about the, the old English and Irish saints and, and, and so forth. And, and that was the kind of seductive persuasion that led me in was thinking, yeah, what I am already is most at home. In communion with the Orthodox Church, and um, and I even learned that you know at the beginning of the 20th century, it had not been impossible to imagine that the Anglican Church would have come into communion with Orthodoxy. That's how close the churches had become uh, through the 1900s and the early uh, uh, sorry through through the 1800s and the and the early 1900s um, up to the point where there was nearly an agreement signed, and it wasn't a theological disagreement that scuppered it. It was. Uh, the Russian Revolution, which uh, brought uh, an end to an agreement between Russia and Britain to support the Greeks uh, against the Turks and to reclaim Constantinople. And then when the British Navy stood off the shore of Asia Minor and allowed the Turks to march Greeks into the sea, it became difficult, that's to say impossible, for the Eastern Orthodox Church to consider union with that, with the with the British at, at that point. And so um, that was such a close call, really. And I felt like in some ways I was fulfilling, you know, the intentionality of, you know, those 19th century Anglo-Catholic, um, tract the Tractarians, the Oxford movement and so forth, who had really been desiring to bring Anglicanism into the wholeness of the Apostolic Church. If you'd like to listen to the second half of this interview, you can head over to patreon.com slash priest. Your support is what makes this podcast possible. Thanks for listening. Say, why would you look outside yourself when you have all of the world inside?